Hey, this is Jonathan Mayo from MLB Pipeline, and you're listening to Friars on the Farm podcast. Welcome to Friars on the Farm podcast. I'm Donovan, and with me is Roy. Oh, spring is in the air. Games are full swing. Guys <laughs> are doing their thing. Oh, I'm loving it. Oh, you know, and it's, 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 I don't know. It's weird when I'm so used to having the team have there be battles and like three or four positions opening and people battling and, and all kinds of looks at new guys and stuff like that. And now everyone's out for the world baseball classic. I'm like, well, God, come on, man. I mean, how many times do I need to see that guy? Well, and even still, most of the starting roles are pretty well defined. Yeah. There's really only a couple question marks, you know, health, health concern. You know, I don't want to knock on wood, but yeah. I mean, you've got one through nine pretty well set as long as everybody's, you know, things are going the way they are. It's, it's those last couple spots on the fringe of the roster, uh, but that's where the guys that we've been following, that's where they might be able to come in. Like I, yeah. I love Jose Azokar. I've become a fan of his over the last couple of years and seeing him come up and do a really solid job is that fifth outfielder last year yeah i was a great fit for it and then brandon dixon was killing it all year he got the call up matthew yeah. batten was killing it all year he got the call up right now i guess he's dealing with a calf strain or something like that yeah uh but uh, there's like a handful of guys david Dahl and and well doll has been taylor colway yeah i have a bunch of guys that are fighting for those last couple of spots what and uh, Adam Engel, who's been injured, and they signed him to a major league roster spot, so he's he's going to have to be put on the forty man. Right, um, he has no options too. So as soon as he's healthy, he's on the big league roster. Right. So I mean, and David Dahl is absolutely pushing for a spot. Meanwhile, Tim Lopes, every time he's up in the box, he's hitting the ball hard. God, <laughs> where'd that guy come from? And and can we have more of that, please? It, it, just to have that depth in yeah, in AAA right? is going to be fantastic. I mean, he's been playing a little bit of shortstop, but yeah. I mean, in the minors the last couple of years, he's played all over the place and he's got some major league experience with the Mariners playing some outfield. Uh, I mean, center field even. And it sounds like the guy can pretty much do everything. I, I don't know. But at the same time, this is the time of the season where we get we get too excited about minor league stat or uh, spring training stats. So, you know, David Dahl slugging over a thousand doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> that that's what he'll be on the major league roster. At the same time, Fernando Tatis Jr. is 0 for 9, and some people are freaking out. After today, is over 12. Okay, but he's just, he's up there tracking pitches, yeah. and he says his timing isn't quite there on the fastball. It, it'll come around. I mean, there's a couple more weeks before this really starts to matter. You know, and if you want to, if you want to pencil it down to, Fernando Tatis, he's not swinging at shitty pitches. He's swinging right. at pitches that he thinks he can do damage with, and there's where the timing is off, and that's fine. I saw a couple of pitches that were like, God, that's a really good pitch he just laid off, you know, that slide, that back foot slider or, or something far, you know, something away from him, um, and he just pisses on it, you know, spits on it, and so that shows me that his eyes there, he's staying with the plan, and that's the thing. You know, you also you want to read into, like, body language when he's coming back from his last at-bat in today's game, you know, he seemed like he was kind of down. His head was kind of down. I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God, it's going to get into his head. <laughs> no, no. no. He, it's, it's not. You know, he's just he's just going through the motions. I um, mean, he might be in his head, like playing the the plate appearance back through or whatever. Right. But he's not freaking out about, oh, no, I'm over 12. What am I going to find a hit? Right. Nah, well, he's not Taylor, worried about that. 
No, but certainly Taylor Callaway hitting 333 quietly uh, with some RBIs is definitely something to be uh, shouting for the rooftops. Right. At some point, the guy that's been hitting it hard all all spring yeah. long, they're going to look at him and go, we need to give this guy an opportunity. Same yeah. thing with the starting rotation. The guys at the back end, I mean, we've talked about Jay Groom a couple of times. He has yet to give up an earned run. And you keep doing that. It's like, we can't tell this guy to go away. And that's how, that's how Nabil Chrismat made his way on the roster. That's how Adam Simber made his way yeah. on the roster. And guys that when spring camp opened, you didn't think they had a chance to make it. And then at the yeah. end of March, you're going, this guy might be something. You know, uh, speaking of Jay Groom, later on, we're going to be talking to Jonathan Mayo from MLB Pipeline, where he talks about the you know the Padres, a couple of the Padres top thirty. Uh, talks he's no he knows Jay Groom real well back from when he was pre draft, um, and we talk about his book. Yeah, I was glad to hear a little more insight about about Jay Groom from him because I I don't Hi. really know a whole lot about him to be honest. Got I know that kid. he was a former top prospect and Tommy John, and that's about it. But. And the the way he talks about perspective in life and and his place yeah. in the game and all of that that's yeah. that tells me he's got his head screwed on straight right and so that's going to do nothing but make him better a couple of ticks on the fastball so there's lots to like about what we've seen and getting that background from from Jonathan has been fantastic he's he's so good to talk to uh, his book is called Smart Wrong and Lucky. The origin stories of baseball's unexpected stars, and you guys, it's on the second half of of um, of the podcast, and it has some fan dude, some fantastic the stuff that I like about baseball. I like to hear about how guys got found, how they almost didn't get found, and how and what scouts did in order to keep those guys a secret. And that is really cool. Yeah, it's it's a really good interview. You guys have to stick around for it. Uh, but the big news since last time we spoke has been Manny Machado's extension. Yeah. Now, w- when we spoke last time, the extension had just been announced that day, yeah. but they hadn't announced the terms of the deal. Absolutely. And this is a little bit of old news, but it just goes to show you, and I think I might have mentioned this during that episode, was like, he's going to get it done. It's going to get done, but it's going to be it's going to be creative. And it's going to be in a way where we can maximize um, money's in other areas, perhaps, you know, perhaps a Juan Soto uh, extension or Otani. I'm a big Soto guy. I like his youth. Um, I like that he doesn't play a demanding position, whereas in uh, Otani, as absolute monster of a player he is and the unicorn that he is, um, even at 28, you know, if he's going to pitch and hit, that's a lot of derb. You know, that's a lot of usage uh, on a body, even though he is he is built. I just I like Soto a little bit better. I'm I'm with you. I I I like the I mean Ted Williams kind of comps with the bat and that's yeah. not going to fade until he's Nelson Cruz's age. Right. Um and 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 I do have the same kind of of durability concerns. Kind of a flip side of that though is that the Padres need starting pitching yeah. and they and then there's the marketability marketability aspect of it. And we've seen what Hassan Kim and Yu Darvish have brought and Otani is a next level superstar above yeah. that in in asia and so just the ability the like revenue stream i could see why the right. padres might want to go after that from a from a financial standpoint as much as from a, a on the field standpoint that was the premier hold on before we even talk about the money for for machado uh, is that premier parking lot that they're turning into a revenue stream is that going to be the soto square or is it going to be the otani square or is it going to be the manny square you know machado right? square <laughs> yeah yeah somebody was posting some uh some renderings of that and <laughs> 
and it's condos and public space and and commercial space and all this stuff all i mean it's pretty exciting looking stuff and you imagine that that's just hundreds of millions of dollars probably into the billions of dollars of of development um that the padres own that property right yeah that's part of the original deal yeah absolutely so that goes along with what we're going to you know with the machado extension or it's just a regular it's all brand new contract so we had a 45 million dollar signing bonus uh he'll make 13 million a year for the next three seasons so he's making less money this year for the next three years he's well below market so that's telling me they really want to go after uh and sign someone to an extension and obviously Mm -hmm. that one is soto uh Mm -hmm. 21 million and 26 and 35 million year after you know for the duration of that so that's even 35 million in four years is going to be just about market price for a top of the line starter. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, top of the line uh, class a free agent. So that's not even overpaying, you know, like 45 million for um, say a, a, a Max Scherzer or um, Justin Verlander. Well, they're just, just one year, $45 million. That's just abysmal amount of money. Right. Right. That's bonkers money. That's, that's yeah. uncle Scrooge kind yeah. of money. Uh, so, but what I, so the average annual value went up just a little bit, yeah. like about a million dollars. I think it was something a one point something million. Uh, but yeah, like you said, this frees them up over the next few years from a, from a annual basis. The average annual value is what affects the luxury tax or the CBT hit, but there's a lot of money coming off the books. So Darnay Tripp, he said that they could still have about $40 million coming off off the books after this year and 12 plus when the Hosmer deal ends after 2025. Yeah. That's because Blake Snell, Josh Hader, and Drew Pomeranz, those guys all come off the books after this year. Now, yeah. Josh Hader is another guy that's been mentioned in potential extension talks. I know uh, Dennis Lynn brought him up. Uh, yeah. I figured that they were going to let him walk, that that's why they signed Robert Suarez to the extension that they got him on. But, and heck, might as well, you got the best closer in baseball, might as well keep him around for another couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in that same article from Dennis Lynn, they talked about, um, it might have been AJ Castleville, where they talked about, you know, as much as Blake Snell has been fun fun to have on the team, that they might just, the inconsistency of his starts, kind of let him go to see free agency. You know, um, I, so I think they might, I think they're already looking past him in a way. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see what this year turns out to be. I mean, if he just lights out from the from the get go, that could change things. But that also changes the price. So I'm, I'm expecting has- a big Blake Snell season this year. Right. I don't know why, but I feel like he's going to hit the ground running for the first time as a Padre. We absolutely need that to happen. But in the same breath, that could be that could make it be really expensive for the for Peter Seidler and the Padres. And oh, that's, oh, for sure. And that kind of goes along with man. What if someone like Jay Groom has a good year this year and comes up and makes a name for himself and maybe he can be a four or five starter next year, Seth Lugo. And then, you know, and Martinez kind of make it take another step forward or a really big step forward in being starters. And then you got three, four and five and then six, you know, six with, um, you know, with a Jay Groom. And then there's Morahone and then there's Ryan Weathers right. and there's, right. there's everybody else. You got Julio Tehran in camp. You got Brent Honeywell. I mean, that's the one thing that I keep going back to. I keep looking at watching these spring training games. They bring in the second wave and they bring in all the right. success pitchers. And there's still a lot of really good players here in depth. Yeah. This team has a lot of depth compared to what we've seen, at least since we started covering this team uh, on this podcast. Well, you we talked about, we talked about it with Jonathan Mayo and something that I didn't, didn't, you know, say 
was on our top 30. There's like five or six guys that have not seen four or five guys that haven't seen uh, a pitch. You know, I haven't seen affiliated ball. Right. I still I don't know how ball. you look at Robbie Snelling and say, okay, yeah, that's your number five, six prospect. Yeah. How, how do you say that? You right. haven't even seen him throw a pitch. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. So well, I get, I get the guys that say, oh, I'm not going to rank somebody until they're, you know, until they're out of the complex. Uh, but yeah, with, with that, that's the pod, the state of the Padres yeah. uh, farm right now. You've yeah. got the guys in single A, double A last year. They're, they're good. Yeah. Right. But uh, do the, do you see major league future in them? But then the guys they just got in this last draft, there's some really talented guys there. Yeah. Yeah, they just haven't gotten started yet, which we'll see a lot of that next year. And we'll have tons of those guys to talk about in the coming uh, season. But right now, let's kick it off to our talk with Jonathan Mayo. Well, hey, we're joined here with Jonathan Mayo uh, from MLB Pipeline, who just came out with a book. Uh, smart, wrong, and lucky—the origin stories of baseball's unexpected stars. But we're also going to talk a lot about the Padres' prospects on the top thirty and some that aren't in the top thirty. Jonathan, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm I'm still recuperating. I'm still uh-huh. uh, months away from returning to work, but I'm uh, I'm well on the mend. Donovan has his his background uh, filtered out with the Friars on the Farm logo, so we can't tell that he's laying on his couch. And if you look there, you guys can't see it, obviously, on the podcast. But I'm wearing a hat. so jonathan you were in padres camp just last week um what kind of things did you see what was your general impression of the buzz around padres camp uh i mean in general the buzz is palpable just because of the what the big league team is hoping to accomplish (laughs) i happened to be there the day the news of the manny machado extension broke so uh that was kind of uh you know a lot of the attention uh there but i think that you know, sort of on the prospect side of things, uh, it's been it's been exciting. You know, Jackson Merrill's getting and will continue to get uh, a good amount of time, uh, continuing to show why people are so excited about him. He just you know sort of carries himself like he belongs. Um, you know, things on the minor league side hadn't really officially gotten going, but these days I find you know more and more. Of, Guys on the minor league side are showing up earlier and earlier or mandated to, even if it's not officially spring training yet. So uh, there were certainly plenty of guys to talk about. So you, Jackson, uh, we don't see a lot of 19 year olds in camp. Uh, he's only played single A, you know, like a half season of single A ball. Uh, but you mentioned the poise. That's something that we've talked about just watching him playing with the storm. But how is he carrying himself around the big league club? I mean, from what I could tell, and listen, I was there for a day, right? So I'm not going to extrapolate too much, nor, nor did I trail Jackson Merrill, uh, you know, during time. But from from what I could see and from what I've, I've gathered and talking to people, it's, you know, the same reason why they felt comfortable sending him to the Arizona Fall League after, you know, part of one season in, in single A is, you know, the, that sort of confidence and uh, and maturity that he has. And knowing that even if he didn't put up you know, big numbers in the fall league or whatever he does, you know, cactus league play, it doesn't matter. Um, it was last fall was about getting them reps and, and they're challenging them a little bit again. Now, uh, there's no need to rush him obviously based on the, you know, how the, the big league roster is kind of chock full of, of players with long-term contracts. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, he can continue to show, you know, that he's a, a much improved shortstop. This is a guy I think coming, coming out in his draft year, there were a lot of people thought he'd have to move to second. And now I don't think he'll have to. The only reason he would is, you know, because of who's in the big leagues and, yeah, we'll see. Uh, I think it'll be exciting to see him have a full healthy season and and what that could mean, you know, in terms of the production that he has and and also, you know, what kind of um movement he can have. Uh, you know, uh, it wouldn't shock anyone if he played across more than one uh, you know, across more than one level and and then sort of see where that puts him for 2024. You know, well, with, really... with with Kim and and uh Bogarts and Machado all off at the uh, World Baseball Classic, he's got plenty of time yep. to show what he can do. What's impressed me is just watching his at bats that he's he's staying within himself. He's he's taking the base hits that he can get. He doesn't seem to be trying to trying to impress people uh, going out of his way. Um, no, and that's I mean that's that's what he does. I mean, I, it was very telling to us. Like when you're in the fall league, you look at his numbers and they're fine, right? They're nothing, you know, especially given how young he is and how little experience he has, but every single scout that we talked to brought him up just in terms of the, those professional at bats, how loud the contact was uh, his approach, uh, all of it, you know, so they were noticing things, even though, you know, he wasn't putting up eye popping numbers necessarily. Right. And and the power will come with him. So he's, he's still growing into his body. The frame is there. And what I, what I saw early in, you know, spring training so far is really just a contact swing, just making contact and hitting the ball where it's placed. I mean, his first day he got three hits and it was like, Oh damn dude, make it, you know, try to, it's a lot harder than it is. Right. He, he, um, yeah. I mean, the power is definitely going to come. It's hit over power. It probably always will be a little bit, but there's going to be plenty of power there. But I mean, to me, that's, that's what you want. And remember he doesn't turn 20 until next month. So there's plenty (laughs) of time for him to figure out the power part. So we had some fortunate timing talking to you today of all days. Uh, your article just dropped this morning titled All Eyes on Newcomer Salas in Padres Camp. Now, Ethan Salas isn't a, a non-roster invitee, but he's been in there catching bullpens. Um, and we've heard that there's a pretty good chance we'll see him in games. Um, so what did you see about Ethan Salas while you were in Padres Camp? I mean, well, so, so full disclosure, I didn't see him. Um, I just talked to Assistant Farm Director Mike Daly about him. Daly. Um, so, you know, uh, I don't want to sort of <laughs> make it seem like, well, I saw him do this, there's this, right. it's just, I think it's kind of, it is more confirmation of what we've heard about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, his, it's, you want to talk about maturity and polish. Yeah. We had him on our uh, pipeline podcast right after he signed and, uh, it, it was very impressive. I mean, you know, Jim Callis and I feel, feel like every year we're impressed with you know, young teenagers and, and their ability to handle themselves in interviews and things like this, this, this kid is 16. Um, you know, he's at the young end for, you know, for the international class, he's fully bilingual as Mike Daly joked, you know, his English is better than ours. Um, (laughs) but the, you know, the, his ability to very comfortably, it's not even like, Oh, his English is good. He's, he's fluent, you know, so his ability to comfortably speak in both languages is, is only going to, help him uh behind the plate uh you know the the bullpens have been very very good uh the batting practice has been you know has been good uh you know and he's clearly showing that he will he's he's good enough to start the year in the united states 
And, you know, as I said in the article, it sounds to me that he'll, you know, he'll hang back, he'll go to the Arizona Complex League. But I don't think anyone would be shocked if he played his way to Lake Elsinore before the year was over. We're we're looking forward to that. And when what I've saw from other people that saw him in camp as well, they're just really impressed with the way he's hit, you know, he saw uh Jonathan uh, Espinoza. Jerry Espinoza? Anderson Espinoza? No, no, no. Uh, Jerry oh, the Espinoza, photographer. The, the yeah, photographer, yeah, Jerry. You know, yeah. saw him in camp and and had a lot of nice things to say about him. I saw him when I was at fantasy camp. He was on the the morning show, Hot Stove. And, you know, they had a, they had a silent, you know, they had the sound off, but watching just him talk and his mannerisms were just, God, the kid's been around forever. Mm-hmm. You know, sure, well, he's got a brother that's in the Miami, you know, the Miami system. Sir, his dad played now with the twins. His brother's with the twins now. But uh, yeah, and uh, and then his father and his grandfather and his uncle. It's the family business. So like, I think there's a comfort level in that setting that comes with that. uh, You know, and then some of it's just the the makeup of the kid. You know, like you you could have someone who grew up around it like that, and you know, isn't as comfortable talking to people and, and, and things like that. Like I said, uh, he joined our podcast in January, like right after he signed and it, it, he was amazing. And so my, my impression is that the guys spend time in the, in the complex leagues kind of to learn how to, how to be a pro, how to be an independent adult. You know, these are teenagers, these are kids, especially when you're talking about the uh, international guys. Uh, But it sounds like he already comes with a lot of the kind of, life skills knowledge that he may they'll be able to fast track and pass that a little bit is that is that kind of a fair assessment it i mean that's what it seems like right now um you know and obviously you, you know pump the brakes just a little bit uh, especially given the position that he plays there's so much that goes into it you know if you were a, a right fielder you know maybe you could move him even faster but yeah i don't think he would uh, just because of the age and and the, and the lack of experience, you know, he is very polished. His game is polished, but we still have to go out and play. Uh, and you know, I think then uh, you're right in the complex league. It's it's a lot about preparation, how to get ready to play every day, how to take care of your body, uh, especially behind the plate. Uh, that's going to be important for him. Uh, not that there are any concerns in that regard. It's not like people think he's you know, was too frail to handle the position and he's super athletic back there too. Um, so I, I think, you know, you, you, there's no reason to move him faster than, you know, than, than that sort of time frame. Right. Uh, you know, I think that they can let him do his thing and listen, the worst thing that happens is he spends all summer in the Arizona complex league and he's still ahead of the curve because he skipped over the DSL. Yeah. You know, so he he's kind of already, already ahead of things. And you know, keep in mind that he is like the equivalent of maybe a junior in high school, maybe he's a sophomore in high school. Like so, uh, <laughs> you know, so I think whatever he does in the in the ACL, like if he hits and gets the full season ball, I think people are like, yeah, that's not surprising. But if he struggles, it that's also really okay. Yeah, we were we were talking about Victor Lizarraga and Samuel Zavala uh, making a good impression in single A this year. And those guys are two and three years older than Salas is. So even if he stalls for a year, that's not a that's not a problem in the grand scheme. of things. It's not even stalling. Like, that's the thing is, like, <laughs> right, right. He could, spend, he could spend two summers in the ACL and he's still not stalling. I mean, he doesn't turn 17 until June, <laughs> um, you know, so it, it's really uh 
kind of crazy. And I think he's, he has every chance to be that kind of generational player who, you know, gets to the big leagues, super, super young. Um, but he's going to do that even if it, you know, he doesn't make it to Lake Elsinore until 2024, you know, wh- whatever it is. Like, I think, uh, you know, this will be a good first step and then it'll be interesting to see after that, how quickly he can move again, knowing that the demands of his position, which he has a firm understanding of, it tends to slow development down just a little bit because right. there's a lot more to learn. Right. Right. It's with, pretty uncommon to see a major league catcher even at ages 21, 22. I mean, oftentimes guys take much longer. Um, so the next person you mentioned in your article uh, as, as a camp standout was Brandon Valenzuela, another catcher. Um, what did you learn about him? Yeah. he was, and One of the things that was really interesting about my conversation with Mike uh, Daly is that he, he kind of brought up some more under the radar guys, you know, Valenzuela was a guy who had been on the top 30, but had, had fallen off. He's, he's kind of in that, you know, after talking to my colleague, Sam Dykstra he's in that 31 to 33 range, uh, you know, put himself on the map in 2021 and then really struggled last year. Um, but what has stood out, it's a little early, you know, to have these camp standout categories, the, the reports that come a little bit later on in the spring when there are minor league games and there's a little bit more, you know, sort of data, but he spent all off season uh, getting into really good shape. I got the sense, uh, maybe reading between the lines a little bit, that part of the reasons for his struggle is that he was not ready to go, uh, you know, and, and uh, maybe struggled with his body over the course of the year, um, but a lot stronger and better shape, um, you know, hitting the ball hard. Uh, you know, I think that there's an expectation that he is going to bounce back and again, super, I mean, he's young, you know, so it's not that big, of, big of a deal. I think mean, was he turning 22 this year? Yeah. Um, so even if he goes back to high A to start the year and I don't, I don't know where he's going to be, but that's, I guess, um, he's still kind of ahead of the curve and has every opportunity to kind of show that he's more like the guy who hit close to 300 in 2021. With power and and with these catching mm-hmm. prospects, you know you have Luis Camposano, who's just starting to get his first full shot in the major league. So even three years now, while those guys develop, Campy will barely be even close to arbitration. Right. Um. So there, there's plenty of time and, and no rush. So I kind of want to stick with that kind of thought for a second. It seemed to me that they did rush a couple of guys up, kind of early. Adrian Morahone, Michelle Baez. Um, even I thought they brought up even CJ Abrams after a strong spring and the injury to Tatis the season before. I thought they brought those guys up a little bit too early. Uh, and they have seemed to have struggled. Even CJ Abrams in spring uh seems to struggle a little bit at the plate there. Yeah, I mean it's it's a tough thing. And uh, you know, I think the Padres are in a different spot now where there's less need to rush a guy, you know, with Abrams, it was the need was a little bit more born out of necessity because, because of the injury, you know, but, um, you know, a guy like him probably needed more reps in the minors. And a lot of times these guys, and, and listen, it happens all the time. Guys come up and the first time it doesn't go so well. And then maybe it's the second or third time that they establish themselves. You know, I feel like I, you know, I use this example all the time, but Mike Trout did not hit his first time up in the big leagues and he was playing. It was like not 40 at bats. It was 
remember he like barely held on to rookie status. Uh, he had like 130 on the dot at bats or 129 at bats, whatever it was. Uh, and he didn't hit, uh, and, uh, you know, he got sent back down and then came back up and was Mike Trout. But, uh, you know, there's not one path that, you know, to, to sort of establish yourself and in an ideal world, player development, uh, you know, you talk to most farm directors and they want players to, uh, you know, they always say it's not just about getting to the big leagues. It's being able to stay there. And if, if development goes super well, then those guys are ready when that phone call comes and then they can stay. Now it just doesn't always happen that way. And, and, you know, I think it does take a certain amount of, um, you know, intestinal fortitude for these young players to fail at that level with that yeah. they've been dreaming about their whole life and then kind of hit the the reset button and, and figure it out from there. It'll, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you, you know, with guys like CJ Abrams and, Hey, I was in Mariners camp right, you know, on the other side of the complex, Jared Kelnick is another guy who's been yeah. swinging the bat really well. And uh, to say he has struggled in the big leagues is an understatement. So like, you know, I think that happens in all, in all organizations. Yeah. We feel as, as Padres fans for as long as we can remember, there's been so little depth at the, from, from a, like a major league experience standpoint that they've been pushing these guys and rushing them up. And Donovan and I have noticed that this year for the first time, they've done a pretty good job of bringing a lot of experience depth into camp. Um, so hopefully they won't need to dig deep and pull anybody up before they need to. And really, I mean, that's, you're trying to build a competitive roster. You're not necessarily, you know, the, the four a team for the rest of the league, like they've been for so long. Right. I think you know, the, the expectation level has changed. Uh, obviously the, the money has changed uh, dramatically, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, the, the, they're there to win right now. And it's, you know, it's not, it's right now. It's not like it's an old roster. I think in the past, you know, it might've been either we don't have anybody in the big league. So we got to rush a guy up or here's the one prospect that we have, right. you know, and right now the you know, the, the Padres system isn't as crazy deep as it once was, uh, you know, uh, and it's gone through various iterations uh, given whether guys have gotten to the big leagues or, you know, trading for Juan Soto has thin things out and things like that. But a lot of the talent that's there is a little bit further away. Um, So it would be, it would be something to see. Like, I I think there isn't anybody there to reach for, you know, uh, you know, there are a couple of couple pitchers who might help out right out of the gate, uh, especially with, uh, with Joe Musgrove uh, on the shelf for a little bit. But other than that, you're going to have to wait a while. You know, it's, it's mostly lower level talent. Some of it's high end. And, you know, in two years from now, the Padres may look like they have a really strong farm system again, you know, unless AJ has traded some of those guys by then, um, which is always a possibility. But, you know, there isn't there are, there isn't the personnel to even do that if you wanted to in terms of rushing guys to the big leagues. Right. Well, one of the guys you talked about that could take Joe Musgrove's spot uh, in the beginning of, of the season is Jake Room. Came over in the Eric Hosmer trade and, you know, everyone was. All the Padre fans were pissed that Hosmer wouldn't take the trade, and they had to, you know, send a bunch of money to to Boston, and they got back Jay Groom, who did pretty well in the Pacific Coast League, which is like pitching on the moon. But he's shown really well early in in this camp. Yeah, no, I've known I've known Jay since his draft year. I went to his high school in Southern Jersey um, and did a bunch of features on him. He was, you know, 
people probably have forgotten by now, but he was at the top of our draft rankings in his draft year. Um, and there was talk about him going, you know, very close to the top of the draft and, uh, it, you know, it didn't end up happening. Uh, and he started, you know, falling down, uh, you know, dropping down a little bit. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that the Padres were the team that really wanted him that draft year. And there was talk uh, about them taking him with their first pick, um, you know, and, and if not, then maybe they would try to, uh, to get him with, uh, you know, they had, they had extra picks that year. Uh, I'm looking up exactly, you know, what they did. So they took, they took Cal Quantrill at eight, but then they also had picks at 24 and 25. Um, and this was the 2016 draft. And, you know, so they tried to kind of manipulate the draft to get groomed down and the Red Sox kind of stepped in and said, we're, we're just going to, we're going to take you, you know, like <laughs> we think you're pretty good. We never thought in a million years you were going to get to us. So that's how we ended up with the Red Sox. And, uh, you know, he's been, he's been through a lot, uh, you know, had some family issues early on that I think were a huge distraction, had Tommy John surgery, um, has a kid now, uh, you, you know, he, he's, he, he, he's an adult, uh, and he is very happy to be with the Padres. Um, has already felt that he's learned a ton, you know, just in, you know, this is his first spring with them, right? He's yeah. just learning, yeah. learning the way, but even the, their off season program, he feels like his velocity is ticking back up. Um, you, you know, I don't think he's ever going to be, he's not the guy that people thought he might be coming out of high school, you know, but you know, a few miles per hour, given the fact that he's kind of learned how to pitch and he's really durable, uh, you know, I, I think he has a chance to be, you know, maybe he's a number four starter, but he could be a number four starter for a really long time and could be the guy who gets that, the ball when, you know, for out of the, uh, out of the gate, you know, and he can sort of make a very good impression that way. Well, well that's interesting that you talk about that, that history. I didn't know that there was that history going back to the draft that the Padres had that much interest in him, uh, pre-draft. Um, but you were talking about like, Guys coming up, they struggle a little bit. They go back down. Um, if Jay gets the opportunity, this could be a good chance for him to come up, get you know two, three, four starts, kind of get a taste of the majors, learn some about what he needs to work on, and then once Joe's you know ready to come back, then go back to work. You know that that kind of seems like a, a healthy kind of a soft landing spot for mm -hmm. Jay to make his debut without having the pressure of you got to stay. We need you. We need you to stick. Um, you know, long term for him. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. It's he doesn't have to come in and be the guy. He's not their first round draft pick who has to prove that he was worth being taken. That's you know, that's we're talking seven years ago he was drafted, right? Yeah. He's he's lived three or four lives, you know, in professional baseball standards since. I also, I mean, he he told me he said one of the best. His daughter, I think, is two now, and he's like oh. the uh, he's like the the beautiful thing is like he comes home and the kid doesn't care whether he went seven innings or he gave up eight, <laughs> nine runs. And he goes, he just, you know, he has a, a, just a much different head on his yeah. shoulders. Right. So I, I think he already has the right mindset to your point that he's not going to come in and think I've got to really prove, you know, that I belong here and, and stick. Um, and I think it will be reiterated to him, you know, hopefully communicated that, you know, you're going to be here till, 
whatever it is, May 1st, I'm just right. picking an arbitrary day, you know, and, you know, help us out. And then you can go back down and keep getting the ball and be ready for the next time in that time, who knows what happens, right? Someone else could get hurt. You know, he could be pitching really well and they decide to stick with him. But I think having him, you know, know that there is not an expectation, a huge expectation for him to carry the rotation or anything ridiculous like that certainly should, should help him, uh, you know, for that, that first step into big league life. Well, it was nice to hear from you that somebody came into some pitcher came in to the Padres development system and learned something. You know, we heard a few things uh, after Cal Quantrill left that, and another pitcher had said that, you know, they never told me that over in Padre camp that this was happening or this was the spin on my ball. So it's nice to have someone come in and actually say something nice about the pitching development. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, listen, I, I think, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know that what works for one person may not work for another person. And, you know, sometimes you just need a change of scenery where a whole new set of eyes looks at what you're doing, you know, and I, I got the sense that Jay felt that, you know, he'd kind of run the course in, in Boston and, you know, there were things that he was doing that he felt even like sort of mechanically, he was, you know, cutting himself off a little bit and that's been fixed. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, the combination of some of those tweaks and some of the, uh, he was doing a lot more things with explosiveness and, and flexibility in terms of his off season workouts. And that got him back to being a little more athletic on the mound. And that got more, you know, a little more of the velocity. Um, he told me he went to Musgrove's house and did the underwater workout thing with him. And he's like, all right, that was nuts. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I, listen, I think it'll be great for him to be around guys like, I mean, nobody works harder than Joe Musgrove, yeah. you know, so, and you see the benefits of it, right? So not that he's going to do exactly the obviously very different pitchers, but there are good guys that are there who will help ease that transition also. Yeah. Right. And you talk about his, uh, his perspective on things, you know, you look long-term that the Padres only have two guys signed really long-term. They've got, you know, Musgrove and, and Darvish as the starting pitchers. Um, there are other guys that have options and, and wacky contracts, but really after this season, there are gonna there's gonna be the opportunity. If he shows, then there'll be a place for him long term yeah. on this on this team. Yeah. Um, so going following with your uh, your article, you got a couple of friends of the podcast here at the toward the bottom here. So your next name on the list was something to prove is Jackson Wolf. Yeah, this is kind of an interesting category because sometimes uh this is somebody who like had a terrible year or was hurt, you know, or, or something along those lines. Um, but I thought this was kind of a, an interesting take on the question. I, I purposely will leave it open-ended, uh, you know, especially when it's coming into a camp where I don't do the top 30 list. Um, but this is a guy who I think because his profile is, you know, is certainly different. Um, that he needs to show that it's going to work at the upper levels, mostly because, uh, you know, the, the velocity, you know, pure velocity wise, his fastball is below average. Yeah. Um, it's really upper eighties, maybe low nineties. Uh, there's been a little bit of a, an uptick, um, which, which has helped. He missed, you know, a good amount of bats in, in high a, but it's really deception and funk and pitching backwards and command. 
um, you know, you see a six foot seven guy and think that uh, he's going to throw harder than that, but that's not who he is. Uh, it's a really interesting profile. I think the ceiling is limited because the stuff doesn't jump off the page, but I think going up to double a, I mean, I know he had the two start yeah. call up there. Uh, you're not going to take away anything from that other than the fact that he's got to see what that was like. And, you know, he seems like the type of guy who's going to have learned a lot of lessons from those two starts and take it into his, his return to double a. And he, you know, he showed up in camp ready to go, uh, packed on some, some good weight. It sounds like, and that might help him maintain the velocity a, a little bit more. And we're going to see how it works at the upper levels for a full season. Yeah. I watched a lot of his starts in high a and the two in double a, and he was just blown by guys. The size uh, was just blown by guys in high a, but once he got to double a, those more advanced hitters, they, they know when you make a mistake, they punish it. And he got punished a lot. I mean, I think, and I think that's going to help with his development. Well, well he's going to have to learn how to pitch and, and rely a lot on deception, but learning how to pitch and keeping guys off speed. And I think working up higher in the zone is where his fastball works a little bit better. Well, I think it's probably a thing that's hard to learn and trust because he does not have the kind of fastball that you think you can throw by hitters. Yeah. But because of the, the, the lower slot, um, you know, with his ability to mix his secondary pitches in, uh, you know, he, sh he should be able to, I should, I mean, the trick will be for him to be able to try to, to use that slot to have a little more carry up in the zone. And that can work sometimes, even, even if you're only throwing 90, 91. All right. So let's finish off this first half here. You're the last member of your list here, breakout candidate, Jagger Haynes. We spoke to him uh, shortly after he was drafted. Uh, but what can you tell us about Jagger? Yeah, he's uh, he's kind of fascinating just because he's, uh, you know, not pitched, um, but uh, he's going to be ready to go. You know, for people who don't know about him, you know, he he, he, he was the their Padres last pick in the short in 2020 draft. Um, you know, he didn't pitch in 2020 because of COVID, you know, in high school even. Uh, then he had Tommy John surgery. So we, as I said in the story, like he hasn't really thrown competitively and since, you know, this junior, junior year, year of high school, right? Maybe the summer, that summer showcase stuff. I don't, I don't have any recollection of what he did or didn't do then, but uh, you know, he's in minor league camp. It's going to be like a normal camp and he's going to go to Lake Elsinore, um, you know, assuming that there are no, you know, issues beyond that, but he looked really good in bullpens. Yeah. Uh, he's still projectable, uh, you know, six foot three left-hander with, uh, you know, fastball change up slider combination. The fastball is up to 94. There could be more in the tank, um, you know, to come because he still has that projectable frame. So he, he's, you know, I thought that was a really fun choice, uh, for, for a breakout candidate because yeah, he's on the top 30, but he's at the very end and he goes out and has a good you know, first full season of pro ball, I think he's going to jump up that Padres list in a hurry. I caught his bullpen when I was there in fantasy camp. So fantasy camp this year coincided with the minor league a mini camp. So I spent most of my time in the hallways running right. into guys. Now, to be clear, you watched his bullpen. You did not catch <laughs> his bullpen. No, I did not catch. Um, uh, well, I was there explain for why fantasy, you're laid up right now. fantasy camp 
Um, I even had a runner of, you know, Heath Bell was my, Heath Bell and RKC and Bracco were our coaches. We took the whole thing. Um, even when I got on, my hips were so bad that even when I got on base, they're like, okay, give him a runner, like medic. <laughs> um, I watched his bullpen and he was throwing for full, full velocity, hundred percent. It looked really good for a guy who doesn't know anything other than seeing a guy throw really hard. Um, it seemed like there was nothing holding him back. So we're really excited to see him. Uh, and I got to say hi and got a picture with him. Hey, dude, what's going on? P- finally putting a, a face to a to a name from our podcast. Yep. So before you came on, I saw the email. You sent me, hey, can we talk about this? And I had no idea that you had written a book. Smart, Sneaky like that. Dude, crafty. Smart, wrong, and lucky. The origin stories of baseball's unexpected stars. Now, this is the stuff I love to hear about. I love hearing about guys being found in some far off high school underrepresented just out of nowhere it's funny when we talked to some of the scouts for the padres we're like the international guys like where's the craziest places you've gone and they've like we've been to venezuela where there were like three hour drive outside of the mm-hmm. uh, the capital city and there's with like, an armed escort right. yeah <laughs> a lot of time there are boats involved i've, I've found know. talking to the international scouts <laughs> Well, so tell, tell us about, about book. your book. What's what's yeah. the book about? What was kind of your uh, your inspiration here? So it, it all kind of started uh, during during the shutdown. I did an we do these oral history stories uh, semi regularly on MLB.com, uh, and uh, I wanted to tell the sort of origin story of Charlie Blackman, the Rockies outfielder, mostly because. Uh, one of my sort of better scout friends, uh, Brian Bridges, who's now the national cross checker for the Giants, was the brave scouting director, had told me the story about how he had drafted Charlie Blackman as a pitcher out of high school. And so I'm like, well, this is interesting. And then, I, you know, I ended up digging in more and talked to a bunch of people and did this whole oral history. And, you know, so for people who don't know, Charlie Blackman didn't hit until his senior year of college. Like at all? <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I mean, this, so this is why I like these stories are great, right? So he, I will tell this story. I don't want to give away too much because I want people to buy the book, yeah. um, but it's not out until July. So you won't even remember this conversation by then. But so he was a pitcher. He went to junior college uh, at first. He didn't sign out of high school, obviously. Uh, got drafted again after his first year of junior college. Uh, started having some elbow issues, but had uh, played two years. It was at Young Harris College. That's where Nick Marcakis went and um, hadn't been recruited by any Division One schools, but then was and ended up at Georgia Tech. Uh, he redshirted because of the elbow issues and, uh, you know, didn't travel with the team, like kind of was trying to throw bullpens on his own. It was, you know, and this is the, the guy you see now is kind of who he has always been. He just wants to play. So he went to play in the uh, Texas Collegiate League. It was like the second year of that summer, one of these summer woodbat leagues. And his manager was Rusty Greer, the old Texas Rangers outfielder. (laughs) So he was there only to pitch. Um, But one day, and I I talked to Rusty Greer for the chapter, uh, Rusty Greer is watching Charlie Blackman run sprints in the outfield as part of his running. And, you know, Charlie was a plus runner, you know? And so he's like, um calls one of the coaches over is like are you watching this so they call charlie over and they're like hey like because they didn't know much about him they just knew he was there to pitch he goes you know do you uh do you hit do you play the outfield 
And Charlie Blackman, who'd just been dying to play baseball, said, uh, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, had never had it. <laughs> no, you played in high school, right? Like, but it'd been, you know, years. So he ended up uh, first hitting leadoff and then was their number three hitter and played center field when he wasn't pitching. He still got his innings. And Rusty Greer called Danny Hall, the Georgia, longtime Georgia Tech coach. You know, he's a the Hall of Fame caliber college coach, been there forever. He said, listen, I, uh, I would never tell you how to run your program. You're, you're an incredible coach. You may want to give him a chance to hit. And uh, his pitching days were over. He had almost 400. And the Rockies kind of <laughs> on the down low, you know, they had a, a new area scout who had no memory of him as a, as a pitcher. So that helped. Right. So he wasn't thinking a lot of times with scouts. And one of the things that Brian Bridges said is like, you get stuck yeah. in seeing a guy. You know, he told me that I didn't use this in the book, but he, Brian told me this other story about how uh, Buster Posey was thought of as a pitching prospect in high school. Um, but Brian had him on his East Coast Pro Showcase team. And even though he was the, like one of the best pitchers there, he used him to pinch hit. And the, there's always a big Georgia versus Florida game in that showcase. And he used him to pinch hit and he doubled off the wall with the bases loaded to win a game. And he still couldn't get out of his mind. Oh, he's a pitcher. Oh, yeah, so, right. that was luck. I missed on that one too. But uh, so that so that Charlie Blackman story kind of I went through all that and I said, there are hundreds of stories like this. So I started doing, you know, a little more research and reaching out to more scouts that I knew, starting off with just a hey, who are the guys that like you got late? You know, so you know, Jacob deGrom ninth round pick didn't pitch until his junior year of college. Um, Albert Pujols is the, is you know, the most famous one. And so I had to have him in there. Mookie Betts, sixth rounder, probably the craziest story um, was Lorenzo Cain, who did not play an inning of baseball in his life until his sophomore year of high school. That's insane. And, and just for the record today announced last night, but officially retired today. From major league baseball. Yeah. Um, an incredible career, you know, gold gloves, all-star appearances. Uh, I think it was an LCS MVP world series ring. I mean, had a really good career. The crazy thing that it all kind of started, uh, hadn't really played much sports at all. Um, you know, single mother family kind of wanted to be around, but then decided he needed to find what to do was this tiny school in the panhandle in Florida. He got cut from his basketball team. And I'm like, how how good was this basketball team that like I don't care if he couldn't shoot a lick. We've all he, seen him scale such yeah. you know, fences. I'm like, so super athletic. How did that but anyway? He had a he had a, a buddy who was on the baseball team. His name was Jeremy Haynes, pitched in the minor leagues for a while. He was already a legitimate baseball prospect. And it was kind of like, Do you think I could play baseball? Because he just was looking for something to do. So he brought him to the coach, and the coach you know, had a, a JV team and it set up a whole, uh, a whole JV schedule and he had eight players. Holy cow. <laughs> like, so, I, I mean, right, I mean, this is a, this is a Disney movie. I kid right. you not. I'm like, as I'm <laughs> hearing these stories, I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? You know? Um, but, uh, so, um, <laughs> what ended up happening was he, uh, he shows up. And the guy's going to put him on the team no matter what. And uh, he he uh, goes to shag flies. He has no equipment. You know, he just shows up in like regular clothes, has to grab something out of like the lost and found and puts the glove on the wrong hand. <laughs> I mean, it's like crazy and then figures it out. 
plays JV, gets drafted two years later as a draft and follow, goes to junior college, is so bad initially in junior college that the coach almost benches him, but the 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 Brewers area scout kind of was like, no, you got to keep playing. Ends up kind of the you know the best player in the conference by the end of the year and signs for like ninety five thousand dollars. Wow. wow! And then goes out and wins the complex league MVP. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I'm like, I was like, I cannot, and you know, I kind of start this the chapter that way. I'm like, this is a, this is a Disney movie. Uh, so we were when you were talking about Charlie Blackman, the catch, the the pitcher, and then like, well, hey, can you play some outfield? Made me think of this clip I saw a couple years ago. So LSU, and I had to find this thing. LSU, this kid Todd Peterson, he's a pitcher, and mm-hmm. apparently he was sent up to to bat. And first pitch, he he feels like the pitcher's like a little bit shaking, and he says, like, come on, let me swing the bat. And the coach says, was you hit? And he, and he goes. I'm, in high school, I used to hit bombs. And what do you know? He hit a home run. And right. then afterwards at the post-game little press conference, because this was a big SEC game, I uh, it's like, you know, coach, um, I actually didn't hit in high school. My coach would let me take BP every once in a while, but I never really hit. Just made me think of that. So yeah. how are you? Are you collecting these stories from players, from scouts, coaches? What was your process on gathering this information? It was all, it all generated from scouts initially. You know, a vast majority of my time, uh, my job is, you know, talking to scouts, especially once we get to sort of draft when I'm really focused on the draft and, uh, and they all are great storytellers. You know, Brian Bridges is one of the greatest storytellers ever. And that's, you know, where this all came from. But then I started doing, you know, more research. And as I reached out to people, if they didn't have a story themselves, then they knew of somebody else like, Oh, Edwin. like, you know about Lorenzo, like Lorenzo Kane, and that was one that had I've seen like some stories about it, but not a lot. You know, uh, like Joey Votto is a chapter in the book, and it like that scouting story has been told to an extent. You know, we had a, like an oral history on it, but I, you know, it's one thing to write a, even a longer piece like that on a website, but I can write you know ten thousand words and really talk to all the people who were involved. You know, a lot of times it was area scout cross checker scouting director sometimes the general manager um and then if you know for most of the chapters i'd talk to the player there were a couple where i didn't i just couldn't quite connect you know with them but had enough from from the scouts to to make it work and it you know it's a combination of wanting to show like you know baseball is hard and talent comes from everywhere and like that the job that these scouts do is amazing and they all have humility about it because, you know, I would give them all the opportunity of like, all right, now's your chance to say that you knew that Albert Pujols was a Hall of Famer or <laughs> you knew Jacob deGrom would be the best pitcher in baseball. You know, he came out of Stetson. And he was throwing 88 to 91 miles an hour and was a command guy. So like and then blew out his elbow that first summer, um, which I didn't even get so much into the development. But that was part of it where the scouts who had you know drafted him started hearing uh, when he came back like yeah there's this dude in down in savannah he's throwing 98 and they're like who you know jacob de grom and they're like i'm sorry jacob de grom looking right. at papers like That's right, right. what we this got was, <laughs> this is a guy who was like he was a shortstop who didn't want to pitch um my favorite thing is i got davy johnson who was his uh he played in like the the summer league in florida and davy johnson was his manager and jacob de grom quit because he 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 wasn't going to get to play shortstop. 
you know, and that's one of the great things about when you go to the Hall of Fame, you get to see these scouting pages yeah. on players, and they all don't shine. Like Jackie Robinson was not the best player in the Negro Leagues at the time. Right. Good enough to play major leagues, obviously, and the rest is history. But the scouting report wasn't wasn't as great as it as other players in the league. Well, and that's the thing, you know, especially with these guys who get drafted later on. And obviously that's a whole different era that you're talking about. And there are yeah. lots of reasons why he was the one chosen. But um, it, it, it's such a subjective thing. And, uh, you know, one guy sees something, uh, 28 other scouts may be like, I don't I don't see, you know, the thing that one of the things that I was like with Lorenzo Cain, very few other teams even had him turned in at all yeah. like uh you know especially at that high school um junior college i think they started to you know figure out who he was but he was playing on a team that had another legitimate prospect so i'm like this guy is super athletic but he was so raw so you know the brewer scout responsible for saying there, there's something more here obviously he didn't know he'd be what he'd be but um you know in, in all of these instances there was at least somebody who thought more highly of them? You know, Albert Pujols. You know, the the scout who probably was the highest on him was actually with the Rays, um, Fernando Arango, who's unfortunately no longer with us. Um, and the story was that he pounded the table and said, "If they don't draft Albert Pujols, he's quitting." <laughs> That's not entirely true. He did leave for another job, but he was higher on him than anybody else. And even within the Rays. Uh, Dan Jennings was the scouting director at the time. Uh, the he had a rule that if an area scout had um, a reporting that was two grades higher than any other report they had, he would send a cross checker in. So he sent two different cross checkers in, and these were like not like oh just some random R.J. Harrison who ended up being the scouting director for the Rays for years, yeah. Stan Meek who ended up being the Marlins scouting director. I mean, and they, neither of them liked him. You know, oh. <laughs> it was like. It was it was just and what sort of pushed the Cardinals over the edge. Everybody, everyone came in. He was playing in the junior college you know, postseason tournament, and he had a terrible game in front of everybody. And I don't know if it was zero for four with four strikeouts, whatever it was. And everyone left. And then um, Mike Roberts, who was the cross checker for the Cardinals, stayed an extra day and hit like three homers, and that's kind of what put them over the top. But like thirteenth round, right? Yeah. right? Well, you look back you know, now, he should have been the number one pick in the draft. <laughs> It, it reminds me of, of just that, you know, it is such a hard game and there's so much development involved in some of these guys. Um, you know, Ty France comes to, comes to mind mm -hmm. 25th round. And we watched him hit in every level, just 25th round hit in Elsinore high, hit in, you know, in double a hit in triple a was almost 400, you know, when the, uh, when they were really playing on the moon with the, uh, with the different ball, um, but he was a, he's a righty hitter. He plays right. third base and first base, kind of limited defensively. He mm -hmm. didn't have the power that jumped off the board. But I mean, the guy just never quit hitting. Yeah, I mean, listen, I could, I could write twenty books on guys like that who like make make them making it to the big leagues at all is something. Them yeah. carving out like any lengthy career like Ty France has you know, been able to do is another thing. You know, I was focusing on the sort of upper echelon guys who came from the you know humbler beginnings um you know you know obviously what fascinates me also would be to do like the the other side of the coin which would be the the guys who are supposed to be stars who didn't make it um 
not as easy a book to sell, right? Because if you see yeah, pictures, right. no. like you see it. <laughs> so this book, the cover's got, you know, Mookie Betts and Albert Pujols and uh, Shane Bieber on it. And uh, uh, so people may see that and be like, oh, yeah, I know who those guys are. Right, right, but right. But like, you know, I'm going to, here's Brian Taylor and oh, Donovan you know, Tate. Mar right. Donovan Tate. Exactly. That's a good example. Like those stories are really interesting to me, but I may have to write a couple more of these first to establish the, the franchise but uh, uh but i could i mean there there are lots more stories of stars or even the ty francis of the world um you know and the great thing is is that every i don't know so often four or five years it'll it'll regenerate itself right more yeah. guys will will come to the fore and become stars that we weren't expecting you right. Know, Everybody has their own story. Yeah. It's always unique. And that's part of the part of the romance of the game is mm -hmm. is here learning people's journeys. So how's the book laid out? You say that there's chapters. How many chapters do you have? How many kind of individual stories do you generally cover in the book? Yeah, there's eight chapters. Each one is just on a player. Um, you know, it uh, made it easy because the idea of a narrative through line to me, I'm like, no, uh, each chapter is sort of standalone. Right. Uh but it's like an oral history kind of a kind of layout. Well, no, or? it's 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 no, it's narratively written. It's you know in third person, um, you know, with as many voices as possible in it. But each chapter, you know, so there's a chapter on Lorenzo Kane and a chapter on Pujols and a chapter on Degrom and uh, and I don't think I don't think I like I don't think there's a, are any scouts who cross over into more than one story. But I'm not a hundred percent sure of that I had to I have to go back through it again um th it's taken me a few years to to get through this um but uh each you know i'm pretty sure that each story has completely different set of voices in it yeah yeah i'm i'm intrigued to to see the joey Votto section i've all i've become fascinated with the whole joey Votto story especially this this uh oral this oral history thing that came out in the athletic and then he went back and annotated it with his own comments and the guy's just a fascinating individual <laughs> and i'm sure his story is 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 right there with it, it how he came about his uh i had not seen that that at the annotated athletic story oh so, my um, god you got it you got to see it it's like red it's red ink <laughs> writing and he's responding to the things people, the stories people told about it. It's, it's hilarious. He, uh, he is a fascinating individual and, you know, from a media standpoint, if you get him at the right time, he's great. And if you get him at the wrong time, duck. Yeah. Um, and I was fortunate enough. I think I, when I, uh, finally arranged to talk to him, he was rehabbing uh, an injury. And so I think he was bored. Right. And so I, I had a, I think I, I only had a half an hour because I had, I had something I had to go to. It was when he could do it. And we finished the half an hour. And then he's like, call me back when you're done with your other thing. I'm like, what? All right. So I ended up getting another half an hour. Um, and listen, he was a second round pick, right? So it's not like, and so was Charlie Blackman. So, so people don't think this is all guys taken in the 15th round or things right. like that. But, um, his story just was real. The, the two things that made this story most interesting that the other team that was really on Joey Votto were the New York Yankees and the scout responsible who was sitting in his living room on draft day, mind you, because they were so confident they were going to get him in the second round was Dick Grock, who is most known for drafting Derek Jeter. Oh, okay. um, so this is a guy who had like pretty good uh, resume, right? Well, it and, sounds like somebody like that. It's like if, if that's his guy, they're going to get his guy. Yeah, oh, especially because 
the there weren't too many teams on him. He was from you know Joey's from Eastern Canada. Uh, wasn't seen much. Had done a little bit of uh, showcase stuff. I think he he went down to the um, to Jupiter. You know, in the the that fall and uh, Casey McKeon, who was the scouting director of the Reds at the time, saw him accidentally because his nephew was playing. And he saw Votto and loved the swing. He was like, holy cow. Got one of his other trusted scouts, John Castleberry, who's been a scout forever, another great storyteller, to come see him. And, like, uh, I don't know how much you guys know about that that event, but it is it is a um, – uh, I'm trying to think of a suitable for family term for it. A bit of a free-for-all. And, right. uh, you know, it's huge. And so, like, <laughs> Castleberry's got a hustle over – and they go and they watch a game. They they watch him take like one at bat, and he hits a rope or whatever. And McKeon's like, "All right, let's get out of here." And and Castleberry's like, "What do you mean? Like, if you want me to?" And like, "No, I don't want anyone to know we we like him." Right, right, right. And okay. so they kept it hidden for the entirety of the spring. And there's a really good story uh, that I retell when they finally go to Canada, five or six of them to go watch this random game in Eastern Canada. And the trying to pretend like like it's very like oh nonchalant you know they, they're wearing local clothes they're they put up right they, they no they went and pretended like they were trying to radar gun the guy warming up in the bullpen until he was throwing like seventy two and they're like oh well we can't that's not fooling anybody right. and there was Dick uh, uh, Dick Rock from the Yankees wasn't there but the Yankees had like a, an associate scout at every single game and wow. uh, I think there was one other team maybe the Dodgers. He got a little attention late, Joey. They did a couple of uh, uh, workouts and, and things like that. But the whole thing was it ended up being like a CIA operation. And uh, they, kept, they kept it hidden from the higher ups in the organization because there were guys who would leak information to their buddies on other teams. And so that got them in trouble because Joey Votto came in for a workout uh, you know, in Cincinnati and just went off. And Jim Bowden, who was the general manager at the time, was like, who the F is this kid? Right. And uh, as a result, John Castleberry and Casey McKean did not return to the Reds after that season. So you talk about how, how the, did that happen? How the Yankee oh, guys were I like watching. You got to read the book. <laughs> read the book. So the Yankee guys were like watching him like a hawk. Is that a thing where scouts are trying to protect their guy and make sure that nobody else is is starting to move in on him? It, it happens less and less frequently right. now. I mean, this was 2002. I want to say, um, is that right? Is that his draft year? I'm not looking at it right now. And uh, I suppose I could look it up while we're talking, but um, that's exactly what you'd expect me to do. And uh, we're going to get emails and tweets from people going like, he had it wrong. 2002. No. That's correct. Yeah, no, I remember. I remember. And, you know, and, you know, travel ball and the showcases, you know, were, were happening more and more. Um, it was just a combination of where he was from. Um you know, he hadn't been a guy before. He was a good player in the area, the best player in the area. Uh, he returned for his, you know, in Canada, they have that like 13th grade. It was like an extra year of high school that he said, like, he never would have played pro ball if it hadn't been for that. Because, uh, and I don't know about that. Like, I, th I think he was committed to go to Coastal Carolina. Uh, he's very self-effacing in that way. Like, I, you know, I'm, you know, obviously confident in what he, he does, especially at this point. But uh, he, he, there was a, a self-deprecating manner about him and just in talking about himself, but he, uh, he just wasn't like 
on radar screens, and I don't think that happens that often in the in the domestic draft anymore. Even internationally, by the way, because there's so many more showcases and things like that, it's hard to to hide a guy. Um, it, it can happen more just because you're you're signing them when they're 16, and who knows what happens in the next couple of years in terms of physical uh, and emotional, even you know, maturity and development. But so I think in today's world. Joey Votto would have been more known just because yeah. he could really, really hit. No one knew what position he was going to be. Um, you know, uh, he'd done some catching early and they thought maybe he'd catch and that was scrapped pretty early on. But, uh, you know, so to answer that question, I think back then, yes. And, and Dick Rock, who's, you know, I don't know if he still is, but when I was doing the research for this chapter was still working as a consultant for the brewers and he's like in his late eighties. Um, so I want to sign up for whatever potion he's taken. And, uh, but he remembered things and he just, you know, he said the one mistake he made cause Vada went to school, um, that day he like, he, he, and, and it's a little dicey, like, cause it was 21 years ago, what happened when, but he thinks Dick said that the one mistake he thinks he made was to not make sure that Vado didn't bring his cell phone with him. Cause he thinks what happened is the reds called and said, we want to take you here. Will you sign for this? And, uh, he didn't have an agent. Oh um, man. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, he came from kind of a working class family, you know, they didn't really, uh, the way he, Joey described it is like, he didn't want for anything, but they didn't have endless amounts of money to go to all the showcase things. And it was, right. to get from Canada to wherever was super expensive. Um, so they were kind of figuring it out on their own and it was a lot, you know, and uh, it got to be too much was part of the reason why Joey got out of the house. And he just stayed put. Maybe he'd be a Yankee. <laughs> so he's there at home. Uh -huh. And Dick Grock, the scout, is in his house, sitting there on his couch. Yeah, well, Joey wasn't. Joey was not at home. Okay. He had, right. He had flown the coop. But Dick is Dick Grock is sitting there with the family as the draft. And back then, remember, it was just a conference call. Yeah. Yeah. There was no TV. I was I was thinking of Joey sitting there like across the room from the guy, knowing that he's <laughs> that he's getting picked by another team. Like what kind of no, what kind of, yeah, what kind of thinking, brass balls uh, that guy must no, have? You're 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 like you're you're putting a little like Jerry Maguire spin Ooh, on pretty it. much. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a Hollywood my word movie is in my, my bond. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it wasn't quite like that, you know. And it wasn't that you know there was no you know you couldn't agree ahead of time. Oh, for know? sure. And. Uh, so I don't want to paint it as if Joey Votto somehow pulled a fast one over the Yankees. It's just the Reds took him first. You know, there was a few picks in front of uh, in front of the Yankees. So uh, he would have gone later on. And uh, to his credit, Joey thinks like that he probably wouldn't have had the career he had had he been with the Yankees because the Yankees, you know, Yankee Stadium, old, new, shorter porch and right field uh, tendency to preach you know, power to the pole side and, you know, as good of a hitters park as Cincinnati has been, uh, there was more of a, a, an all fields approach, which is exactly the way Joey Votto likes to hit. hit right. Yeah. He's always been just as happy to go the other way as to, to, to yank the ball down, down the line, down the right field line. So he, he, he he's not sure it would have worked, uh, mm. in, you know, in, in New York now. Well, we really appreciate you coming on, and yeah. we're going to get you out of here in a few more minutes. But, you know, you've been around for a long time. And you're talking about you guys. me old. <laughs> hey, I I'm shaved sorry. the please, beard before please, the podcast. Please continue. 
<laughs> um, that's not powdered donut on your chin there. No. That's the. <laughs> Well, well, you, you, we talk about these guys that you know might have not been found, or you know they're hard to find, and those the stories are, you know, few and far between, but they happen a lot. Um, nowadays, these guys, you can't lose these. You know, if you have talent, they will find you. What has changed, um, and how much has technology changed? Uh, the scouting and scouting departments, and and seeing guys, and how you know, have you seen any of the those guys that got drafted that really didn't have the the number popping? you know, the stat cast number popping numbers. Yeah. I mean, I think by and large, because I was focusing on guys who've already had very good major league careers, it was long enough ago that a lot of that stuff didn't exist. Yeah. Um, I think it's a combination of, um, you know, a, a lot of the showcase, it's a, you know, a lot of the showcase stuff for the, for the high school guys, especially, um, you know, I think uh, has shortened that sort of, that gap a little bit and there's a lot more data that comes out of, out of them. So you can use the combination of laying, you know, the teams that do it the right way. And I think everyone has learned this by now is that you can't just rely on the data and you can't just rely only on, you know, a handful of scouts laying eyes on a guy. It's gotta be both. If you're doing it right, it should be both, right? They're all tools and you should use all the tools that you can. Um, so there's a lot more data, uh, you know, against good competition that you can see now what, you know, this book I didn't get into, but it would be sort of be a, a companion piece would talk about the development of some of these guys, you know, and how player development figures into it because you, you know, you're handed a lump of clay sometimes and they have to be molded and not taking any credit away from the players themselves and how hard they had to work to, to get there. Um, but that, you know, there will always be, even with all the information and there's, a, you know, tons more video that you can see, you know, so guys won't be completely out of nowhere, but there are always going to be, you know, the, the Jacob DeGroms and the Lorenzo Canes of the world, um, because one scout or one or two teams saw a guy took a flyer on him and was able to sign him, you know, uh, that you know they're always they're going to be always stories like this to tell yeah jonathan we really appreciate you taking the time it's a day podcast normally we we record at night i i think you're you you must have business going on during the evening with with the family um i'm here in my wife's office which is our living room right right <laughs> now um we appreciate you taking the time um tell us one more time about the book where they can get it when it's going to come out yep. and everything it's called Smart, Long, and Ru Smart, Wrong, and Lucky. Uh, it, you can pre-order it now wherever you find books online, but Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble, um, you know, those kinds of places. And the official release date is July 11th, which I believe is the All Star Game. Um, so I think I'm probably going to just completely preempt the All Star Game with a book signing party in Seattle, so no <laughs> one will is, go to the All Star Game. Is is this your first book? I'm on Amazon here, and no. apparently there is another Jonathan. Oh, there's a Mayo different Jonathan Mayo. Yes, no, I'm not the one who wrote the history books. Um, although I am the son of a history professor. <laughs> you you didn't so write the Radio Amateurs me. Digital Communications Handbook. No, no, and somebody wrote a book about like there was like a World War One or World War Two, but you know, different guy. Um. No, I wrote a, a book called Facing Clements back in 2008 um, that uh, was kind of each chapter was talking to a hitter 
about the challenges of facing him at different stages in his career, which was a fun project, except for the fact that the book was at the printer when the Mitchell report came out. So that was bad timing. Um, So, uh, but it was a good exercise. This one, I feel um, I hold a little closer to my heart. That one was an idea that was presented to me. Very good idea. And I enjoyed it. Uh, But this was all like very much my, my own. And um, so, and, and more in my, in the wheelhouse of the things that I do for, for a living, uh, you know, and talking to the people that I know um, to tell those, to tell those stories. So it's a little closer, a little closer to my heart, more passion, right? More passion, a little bit driven. Excellent. Well, we really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks guys.